Greetings, everyone. My name is Zenju, for those who hadn't heard. And uh, Zenju Earthwind Manual. And Zenju is my Dharma name that was given to me. It means uh, complete tenderness. And Earthwind is the name my mother gave me. So Earthwind. And Manuel and is a um, slave name, right? So a name from a plantation from some place in the world. And I like to mention that so people understand what has happened in the world and to remember that. And so this name has been passed down from the Portuguese, Manuel. It's not Spanish, it's Portuguese. So, um, so I want to um, back it up. And um, I do want to have question, questions and answers. So I don't want to keep talking and talking. I really want to hear from you and what's brought you here. And, um, and just have a dialogue together, you know. And um, don't be afraid to smile. It's OK. <laughs> and uh, great. Be comfortable, too, if you're not comfortable. So um, I am going to speak this weekend from my book, The Way of Tenderness. And um, so as I said, my name, Zenju, means complete tenderness. And so that became the path of this uh, book, uh, my practice, and everything else. So um, I don't know, uh, all you know, that uh, when you're given a Dharma name, they give you two. And I was given two, Ekai Zenju. And um, my teacher insisted that you don't use the first name, although I liked Ekai, because it had an E, like, my, or like Earthland. And, um, and I could relate to the, it was ocean of wisdom, and I liked that ocean idea. So I kept, everybody would say, well, what's your Dharma name? And I'll go, Ekai. And my teacher would be sitting there. She said, no. I told you, <laughs> it's Zenju. You know, you use Zenju. And Ekai is uh, the informal name. And so, uh, you know, one time I did it again at the <laughs> lunch table. Somebody asked me my name my new Dharma name, and I said Ekai again, and she corrected, no, it's Zenju. So the second name, why that's really important too, not that it's formal, um, but that uh, Zenju is the name, or your second name, is the one that you are not, <laughs> the essence you are not, or the one you are to work on. So complete tenderness. I always tell people, they go, oh, that's so sweet. And I go, that's what I'm not. <laughs> so that's my, it's my practice to move toward the, the complete tenderness and um, to understand what that means to me and um, to, uh, to walk it. You know, so I started using it. A lot of people don't use their Dharma names. But I started using Zenju just to see what would happen, you know, if I used it, if I would take on that essence. And so the, um, the first time I used it, it was really strange because Zenju did not have a resume or anything, no experience at all in the world. She, you know, no one knew who she was. And even today, some people say, you surely remind me of Earthland so much, and I go, I am Earthland, because <laughs> that's my other name, right, that most people know me by. So, you know, and they've known me with that name. Matter of fact, I just saw a post cause on Facebook. I love Facebook. So <laughs> there's a post on there. Someone says, wow, that person looks like Earthland. And I'm in my robes, you know. Yeah, the one who used to drum, you know, because <laughs> it doesn't um, connect to people. How can she be a drummer of African rhythms and wear Dharma ropes? <laughs> and so um, I think that that uh, speaks to how we sometimes look at each other and how we look at uh, and what we think when we look at each other, you know, and what, it, what, we perceive, what perceptions we make around it. What are we perceiving? you know, when we look at each other right away. Sometimes you may see a person and they look like your best friend, or they look like your ex, you know, <laughs> or your mother, or your father, you know, or something like that. So you start 
responding to that person based on your experience with that appearance of, of a person. So I, I believe that in my practice that that was most poignant because of um, how I appear in the world and what I look like and uh, the amount of uh, harmful acts that were perpetrated against me and others. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering as I'm practicing, how can the Dharma meet that, um, this embodiment for me? How, how is liberation uh, to occur in this incarnation? And I don't feel like it's a personal question just for Zinju Earth Emanuel. I feel like it's a question for all of us, no matter who you are, that um, your embodiment and your incarnation somehow must play a major role in your awakening and in your liberation. And so I began to uh, walk with that and um, really expected um, not my teachers or even Buddha to tell me exactly how to live. So a lot of people come onto the path and they're looking for a formula or looking for a way or a method to um, you know, get them out of the suffering you know, immediately. And so, of course, I was one of those people, too. So I'm not talking about anyone else but myself, of wanting to be relieved of all the suffering of the human condition. So it was important uh, for me to uh, not gravitate to meditation just to be calm. <laughs> and um, because I wasn't at all calm in the beginning, it was very difficult to to breathe and to sit and to be with a lot of people. Um, first, I was very introverted, and I still am, really. So to, I think meditation draws introverts. You go, oh, I like this, just me, you know? <laughs> but eventually, guess what? You have to <laughs> interact <laughs> and um, relate to uh, various people. Um, I was talking to a student in, um, when I was head, stu head, uh, head student, which is Shuso, at the San Francisco Zen Center. And he said, I just can't wait till I get to Tassajara Zen Center, which is out in the forest and in the woods. And you know, it's really beautiful. I just can't wait to get out there and leave City Center, which is in the urban area. And so, you know, I said, yeah, I was like that too. I couldn't wait to get out there with the trees and everything. And I said, but guess what? When I got out there, guess what I found? He said, what? I said, people. You know, <laughs> so, you know, there's still, you just can't get away from it. <laughs> and so I think it's very important that uh, one of the core teachings of Buddha is interrelationship. That's a core teaching. And not just interrelationship between hum humans, but interrelationship between all beings and all things. And so um, I wanted to develop that kind of way of living and an interrelationship with everyone and everything. Um, and that was, to me, a tall order, a pretty tall order. And it required, uh, on my part, uh, a lot of um, sitting, of course, uh, meditation and sitting, doing zazen. But it also required me to uh, let go of some of the things I strongly believed and, um, and to kind of turn things upside down, you know, and to listen to the teachers sometimes when they would tell me, no, that's not what's happening. <laughs> and I would go, yes, it is. Yes, it is. I used to, I love to argue with teachers and, and debate. And I was that way when I was in the uh, Christian religion as well. So I, I studied Christianity. I stayed in Christianity until I was in my 30s. So I was a devout Christian. And I would debate with the ministers constantly. So it was real important for me to, um, to not only take things for face value, but to ask the questions and see specifically how it related to my lived experience. So of course, um, I didn't necessarily talk a lot about race, sexuality, and gender, 
which is part of the second uh, tagline on my book, The Way of Tenderness, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender. I didn't really um, ask a lot of questions around that uh, with my teachers. And I also did not uh, um, necessarily participate in a lot of the diversity training and committees that they had at San Francisco Zen Center. And um, there had been several uh, people of color who became priests who had done that. Uh, for me, I had decided that I wanted to just uh, witness and walk. And I also wanted to uh, be able to take on the training of the Dharma without having to um, take a tangent, side tangent to teach something that I felt I wasn't ready to teach. I could have taught uh, them and the people around me and my Sangha from a very political or sociological or psychological perspective. But I felt there are great teachers who have already done that from, and maybe even more angles than those three. So I didn't pursue that at all. And, um, you know, might as well talk to Angela Davis, who I talked to me. Our bell hooks are who also practiced, you know. So I didn't feel I needed to uh, really uh, be the, a spokesperson on that or address that. Um, after I completed most of my training, I realized that I did have a lot to say, even though I was walking. And, but I wanted to talk about it in the realm of Dharma. Because what I found is uh, quite often, um, even at um, various places, when it's time to talk about race, sexuality, and gender, somehow we step aside and suddenly we're, on, we're talking um, politically or historically or psychologically or sociologically. And, I, and for me, I really had already um, studied that because I already I studied it in school. And I, and I really wanted the Dharma teachers to speak to the teachings and and this particular topic. How does contemplative practice meet the challenge of race, sexuality, and gender? So that we're not always stepping out to understand it from these other places, which I think we need to. We need to understand it from a historical, psychological, sociological, place, even ecological place, all these paths. But that's not where I was. I was in the monastery. I was in Zen practice then training. And I didn't feel like, and I've invested a lot of money and time and angst and everything else to the wise, then now step out of it to get an answer to my life. <laughs> you know, it just didn't make sense to me. And so I think all along I have been writing um, essays around it to myself, not to everyone else. And um, this book, is, it's interesting how it came out at a time when there were so many, so much brutality going on in our country, because I had written it like two, almost three years ahead of time, three or four years ahead. And it came out like right when things started happening. So I always tell people I didn't jump up and write the book as soon as Ferguson happened. It just did not happen that way for me. It, it was an evolution. And so I began to, I was actually very frightened that this for this book to come out. And uh, one of the reasons I was frightened about it is I, as a Dharma teacher, um, was uh, sharing my personal uh, life, for one, which my one of my teachers said, you don't do. So this is what I did <laughs> already. And then number two, I was talking about identity. And I was talking about there's nothing wrong with having one. And, and I thought that was going to be very controversial. I thought, OK, strip her of her robes and send her home. <laughs> this is not what we taught, not what we taught you. And so uh, what I, I am saying in this book about identity is that there's nothing wrong with identity itself. But what, is, uh, what happens with us is there is a distortion around the identity. Uh, an, uh, an illusion around the identity itself. And I felt like if we began to work with the distortions 
around how we appear in the world, then we would be a lot closer than waiting for people to drop their, their whole embodiment. I'm waiting for you to drop your embodiment so you can be liberated and awakened, and me too. And what I see is that that is not necessarily possible. It's a great goal and an attainment, but I think uh, people want to uh, really want that, and so we jump to the absolute place of having dropped body, mind, and soul. And I think that we practice that when we're sitting, we're practicing dropping the mind and the body. We are doing that. But at, when our wake, walking lies, we, we're in it, and we need to be awake to it. And I felt I needed to be awake to that. So how am I interacting in a, um, a, a small kind of world, micro world in Zen Center, you know, where I'm living or practicing, and then the larger world, you know, how is that, how are these two things, you know, reflecting each other? So um, if we're looking at distortions, which is what I began with before, you can look at someone and say, that's my friend, and she looks like my best friend, so you become friends with this person. Or, you know, or that person's like my ex, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend, I'm going to go the other way, you know. So there's a, there's, there's a thing that happens, you know, with us. And so this also happens around race and sexuality and gender. I don't think I'm going to deal with that person. You know, I've had a, a number of people come up to me and say, I wasn't exactly going to come to your talk. I wasn't going to come to your talk. Hold on. Bobby Pin has slipped. <laughs> Try to get it back on here. Let's see if they stay there. Um, <clears throat> because they were afraid, you know, they weren't going to come and hear a talk on race, sexuality, and gender. Um, many of us come to the path hoping not to talk about these things. Um, I understood, I had written an essay um, on the second noble truth and the suffering of systemic oppression. I had written that and it was going to be read at a particular Buddhist center with an, a sangha and one of the and I got feedback that one of the the um, people said this is exact why are we doing this I, it's not what I came here to do you know because it's always so much in that realm over here in the political realm or the this realm or the that realm and not the spiritual path definitely not the path of dharma so um, my uh, teaching around the way of tenderness is that the, our embodiment, the nature of our embodiment, and uh, especially race, sexuality, and gender, and on, it could be class, uh, it, it goes on. It's a long list that will not fit on a cover of a book. So people say, you didn't include this. It's like, it's there. It's because I'm talking simultaneously about places of margin, you know, marginality based on our embodiment. So these, these paths, I think, is the greatest gift that we were given, the greatest inheritance, because it, it was, it, to me, felt to be my path to understanding boundlessness and liberation, because you really can't go there and be boundless, really. But I begin to understand boundlessness by actually looking at the relative existence of my life and seeing that this was major gateway, major pathway to awakening. If I were to really just look at blackness and see the evolution of it even inside my own life, you know, it's, it was just a major path. And I did that a lot, just walking around in my practice and sitting and being, and just really hearing the teachings um, being taught in Dharma talks and our classes and everything that was taught, I would, I would translate it into this uh, way I call way of tenderness that can be basically the tenderness is your heart, you're being touched. Where can I be touched by this talk in my heart? Where can I be touched by this practice in my heart? 
uh, where are all these tears coming from and what do I do with them? Where, what is this pain, you know, and how can I be in the world and fully live a full life? I wanted to live a full life, fully. <laughs> so uh, with all, all that I came with and, um, and I wanted that for everyone, you know, for all of us to have that, to have that interrelationship that included everything. And um, I think as a child, I was always very disappointed when I'm, uh, going to church and then discovering, you know, people were just as bad as they weren't going to church. That's what it felt like to me. It was like, I don't see any difference, you know. And what I didn't understand is that, which my mother really helped me with, is that people are imperfect and that we're all kind of on the path. So she's kind of like my first Dharma teacher, basically, because I was really upset that everybody else was partying and drinking and I was told not to. So it's just like, well, you know. <laughs> and so of course I decided to do that too, you know, <laughs> that's okay. And I get to heaven, I'm going to party, you know? So anyway, so I think I would always get disappointed in all spiritual communities I would go into. And, um, I think Zen was the first time I really could uh, turn this path inward and really see the nature of my life and the nature of others, of life, period. And then to, uh, to really study this uh, idea of um, boundlessness. So I wanted to uh, share, let's see, what do I put in here? To share something with you. Okay, I think this is a good one. There is nothing more dominant than the true nature of life. Our bodies physically and spiritually are part of that very nature. Therefore, awakening to the challenges of race, sexuality, and gender begins in the body where we struggle. Awakening is to open our hearts wide enough to see the perfection and the tensions as the path to liberation. <laughs> With the clip on this. Okay, I'll try again. Put it on my robe. I think the robe is a little bit thicker. Let's see if that works. Okay. So uh, awakening is to open our hearts wide enough to the perfection and the tensions. Awakening is to open our hearts wide enough to see the perfection and the tensions. The perfection and the tension, that's kind of like not the perfection we're looking for when we come to a spiritual path. <laughs> we want the perfection in the silence, uh, the perfection in the ritual, uh, what other maybe things we want perfection in, <laughs> you know? Other places, anything but the tension. Yeah. Huh? Ease. Yes, ease, perfection and the ease. We want to uh, relax. We want to um, move away from the things that bother us. And what I found is that that could last for about 10 minutes about 10 minutes, and then here it comes, like a herd of buffalo. Here are the things that bother you. You know, here, here they are. How are you going to live with it? You know, how are you going to sit with it? You know, and I, I really have to, um, one person and Tassahara said, well, how did you transform your life and you were able to, um, you know, began to feel liberated. And I said, well, Zazen. And she's like, that is not the answer I thought you would say. And I don't know what other answer there will be for me because <laughs> it was the sitting that enabled me. So here's the buffaloes, the usual things that bother, but you're sitting still, allowing that to be illuminated. And so the more it was illuminated over the years, now it took many, many, many years, not saying I'm liberated, all right, quote, disclaimer, that, you know, there is this way in which these things keep coming back, but in different ways, you know, and they show up differently. And everybody I encounter changes that, too. 
everything changes. So I got to see that um, really feel into the uh, teachings even changing and evolving inside of me in the sitting. Um, so I think that that's important. The teachings must evolve with you too, how they are shaped by your life, you know. So we sit there and we go, a teacher tells you something like I just did, you know, awakening is to open our hearts. Sounds very nice. <laughs> very good. That feels good. Those words feel good. But in five minutes, what is it going to mean to you? In five minutes, when all the stuff that bothers you comes rolling forward, you know. So um, that was a practice for me. I actually spent, a, uh, I created this practice called the Open Heart Practice, my own personal one. And I only started sharing that with people later. And I spent a, a, like a week of just um, being open to all the people who were looking away at me or laughing at me or treating me badly. I would, keep, I would try to stay open and, and even though I knew my heart was open, but not to shut down on them and how to keep going, you know, how to keep walking rather than collapsing under this kind of imposed experience of uh, discrimination or hatred, you know. How, and so I did that for a week. It was very hard because I, I had discovered I wasn't even interacting with the world. Just off to the store, you know, stand in line, you know, cover my eyes. You know, everything was covered. I was not interacting. I was not being in life. I was just trying to get through, make sure I get what I need to eat, you know, my medicine, go to the doctors, go here, go there, and just try to ignore all the things that were happening. And so I started facing, I started meeting, you know, these tensions and um, pain straight, straight on. And, and that's when my heart began to awaken. It was interesting that it began to awaken to what? To me, <laughs> to myself, to my life, and then what I was doing, I began to see that that's, this was, I had become something I really wasn't. I wasn't the kind of person who would ignore people, you know, but I had become that in a way to, you know, protect myself. So, but I wasn't living fully, you know, so a protected life isn't always a full life. You know, I realized that. And I wanted a full life. I wanted to be able to connect to people. I wanted to enjoy people and, and enjoy life, enjoy animals, enjoy everything, enjoy the sky, you know, enjoy the grass, you know, without worrying about anything else happening. So that was so, but that was a process. So um, maybe that's a practice you might try, you know, um, throughout the, the sashim is um, to just um, notice the things that come rumbling through and having an awakening heart to it and meeting it, even if it makes you cry. Um, one time, um, uh, sitting in Sashin, it, it was a row of people. And you know, I think it was maybe um, probably about the fifth day, which is really hard. And seven day Sashin, so day five, you're like, uh, really steep in the stew, as they say, <laughs> really cooking. And so I remember I was like so tired, I just started crying. <laughs> and it's like not like a loud cry, just crying. And then before I knew it, the whole row was crying. <laughs> All the whole row. And I said, God, I wonder how many more people would like to join us. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, like all this, these days, I have been sitting with these people and nobody ever, you know, cried. But we did, we all wanted to cry, you know? And we're all just different people with different lives, with different pain and different suffering. So beautiful, intimate connection, and that's what Zazen gives us. We're very intimate, sitting close to each other with all that we, you know, um, have going on. You know, to sit close to someone and just breathe is pretty intimate. Or to eat, sitting next to people you are not your family necessarily. So uh, that was also a great practice for me. 
So um, each day I'll read you a little bit of something from the book. It's a lot in the book. Uh, I always tell people don't take it and read it from page, from cover to cover. Because um, it's, it's a lot to just kind of take it little by little if you have this book. Uh, or How many people here have read this book? Some of it? Yeah, good. Great, good. Then we have the good question and answers. Yeah, so, you know, just take it little by little and not like a whole pie and try to swallow it and become something. Boundless. <laughs> so um, that's also one of my... Um, core teachings, and a lot of people talk about it as spiritual bypass, but even that has gotten, I think that's uh, incidental for some people, but I think that as a life path, you know, really looking at things that um, are up in our lives and not trying to hurry up and be liberated or hurry up and be relaxed or hurry up and be calm. And, you know, I tend to turn down jobs when they say, I want you to come and teach meditation to like a school or a staff or because they wanted, you know, me to come in and teach quietism is what I think. And I don't teach quietism. I, I don't teach quiet, I teach liberation. So I don't think they really want me. Because <laughs> it would take a little bit longer than the time they'd given me <laughs> to help folks out. So I tend to um, not take on those jobs. Um, so I think I'd like to open it up for questions. I'm not sure the, t uh, the timing here of everything, but I, I think we have time, right? Good, all right. I don't want to keep talking, especially since there's a lot of folks who've read some of the book. Okay, questions? Okay, one, two. The spiritual path is. So you have to remember it's a spiritual path, you know, not a pathology, you know, so not a sickness in you or your family or in us, any of us, you know, so it's a path. It, I mean, 
When I say we were inherited, I talk about that in the book. I say, you know, we've been given the greatest inheritance, and that's nature. We inherited nature. We are nature because we are form. So, um, and I always tell people, you know, they're worried about the inheritance at the bank, you know, are not getting any, you know, because <laughs> for many it's not going to happen. So, you know, you, you might get a dresser or something from your mother. But <laughs> I think it's really important to um, also see our, our humanness, our, our fragility also as nature. You know, so sometimes, uh, you know, even literally the embodiment of ourselves maybe in a flower is sometimes, you know, just kind of like weak, you know. And it doesn't mean it's um, horrible, it just won't stand up, you know, right now. And so I think it's important to see ourselves that way. When they say go out into nature, it's to go out to see ourselves. You know, we're not going to say, look at that pretty flower, and then go, well, I really don't like that one. But let me go, you know, watch out for the poison oak. You know, everything gets really, all, you know, dangerous some, sometimes. <laughs> go up, watch out for the bears, you know. The wolf. But, the, you know, but there's also the beauty, the, you know, the birds and everything else there. So I think it's important to um, uh, witness yourself and not become the suffering that you feel. Don't become it, you know, witness it, you know. Um, it's hard, it's a, it's a fine line, but sometimes we do become that suffering, you know. Um, and when we become it, then we start wallowing in it, and um, it's hard to, to remove. Now that's like we're stuck in that. <laughs> um, so, uh, Study the, the distortion of it all, you know. And if something's distorted, it's just distorted. And then you can know to, that it is. And most of everything is, right? So we can just try to find our way to have a direct experience of everything. And um, then when we come out of that direct experience, um, yeah, perhaps that person who looks like your best friend is just like your best friend. You know, maybe so, maybe not, you know, so, yeah. Thank you, and I, I, I just, I guess I'm a little bit, like, surprised, you know, like, meeting my practice edge, you know, because I, I've been practicing and sitting for many years, and I've opened up to lots of things, you know, so I'm just kind of shocked that I'm right, like, okay, I have to, you know, there are balances, you know, it's like, it's like, ooh, there's an expansion there of, and a depth of a certain kind of, um, you know, how to say, you know, certain, certain kind of uh, embodiment that I was, you know, was quite, I wasn't aware of the depth of the power of that. And so it's like something, my balance is going to put my, my capacity is almost right at that edge. Good. Congratulations. <laughs> All right. Um, I've been reflecting a lot on like binaries, and um, I guess my question is just: Do you have any teachings or practices that you've done to work directly with, I guess, the concept or the lived experience? Or um, say more what you're reflecting on binaries. I mean, Gender, mm-hmm. Um, I'm biracial, so like, mm-hmm. you know, these ideas of black, white, or mm-hmm. um, things that we live with, yeah. people are constantly trying to categorize. Right. Okay. Just want to be clear. <laughs> All right. So, um, one thing I talk about in the book, and it's just um, uh, one sentence, I don't know if it's this, but non-duality, non-duality is not supreme over duality. And duality is not supreme over non-duality. So somewhere, and I think because I felt I got this notion that non-duality is supreme. 
and therefore we go for, I call it spiritual supremacy, <laughs> where we try to be non-dual, loving, kind, compassionate, one, be one, be, 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 these things that already exist uh, without our creating it. We did not create non-duality, and we did not create duality. We did not create peace, we did not create compassion, we did not create loving kindness. And so when we go to, to create these things, it, it, it's weird. Like when someone's trying to be loving kind to you, when it's already there. Because it, it comes out nice or something, or something else other than this larger, broader expanse. You talk about expansive and boundlessness, broader place that um, is, is, is beyond me being nice to you and you to me and you are you and I am me. Um, so I think that it's important to, uh, we wanna get rid of, of certain things, um, thinking it'll make life easy, you know? So I don't believe necessarily that um, the erasure of duality, or binary is the word you use, is necessarily um, an answer to liberation. Um, it, it can be defined to be liberation for particular people. And I think that that's okay, you know, for personal life. It doesn't have to be pervasive, you know, to others, I think. And I think what we have to do is include it all. That, um, that the duality is there. Duality is more than two, though, I believe. It's more than the opposite. You know, I could do another book on duality. But for me, from what I've learned, it's not just one, two, you know. Um, in Zen, there's always the paradoxal, right? The is and the isn't. You know, it is and it isn't. Um, that I would go for before I go with, you know, just two, op one and two, black and white, he and she. But it, if we went with it is and it isn't, that opens it up right away. It is and it isn't, you know. I am and I'm not you know, black or whatever, you know? So if we open it up to is, the is and the isn't, the paradoxical, uh, paradoxical lesson in Zen, and uh, often talked about in Suzuki Roshi's book, um, Not Always So, which is a good book to read. Um, and because um, he basically is talking about those places that appear opposite, you know? so. Uh, Non-duality exists um, right now. It's existing right now. Uh, if I begin to talk about my embodiment, um, the non-duality still exists. It's not going gone away. Um, and um, the duality still exists as well because I'm not creating it or taking it away because I'm not that powerful. Neither are any of you. Thank goodness, right? I've been saying that to the other, I said that the other day. Because, um, but we do try to manipulate that. And so I, my practice is trying not to manipulate everything. You know, manipulate the title, the name, the, the label, but I do use them, you know. Um, there is a convenience in it. But at the same time, I may not see black the way other people see black if you were to have a conversation with me, you know? So that uh, is my own lived experience, my own um, shaping of that concept, and it's ever-changing, ever-evolving, you know, as we evolve as uh, human beings. You know, we um, are all living things as the, as, as the Earth evolves. You know, we find different names for what it looks like. And, and that's okay, because there's still non-duality, <laughs> even if we find a name for it, you know. So um, I think it's important for uh, people to, to name, if they would like to, who they are, to identify that. It could be a path of empowerment for you, a path of, um, you know, it was for me. You know, when I went from um, a school where I was one of many white children, and then when I grew up and went to college, I took Pan-African study classes, 
And it was really powerful for me to realize like, oh man, all these black people been doing all this writing all these years, oh wow. Because I was a writer and I never knew, you know, till I got to college. You know, we didn't have, you know, Ralph Ellison, <laughs> you know, Nate, we didn't have those books, Richard Wright, Nato's son. So now it's in some of the schools, but that at my time it wasn't, you know. So it can be empowering and an emotional um, uplifting sometimes to name um, yourself as you see yourself, you know, and um, share yourself in that way. I particularly don't feel it takes you away from the enlightenment until you are not willing to uh, evolve with it because it's going to evolve. It's going to evolve because I know that for my own self. And um, the evolution is sometimes unwanted, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I want to stay right here, you know. Uh, I know, since I've written this book, people have been calling me all kinds of names on a queer level. So it's, I'm a lesbian, I'm a bisexual, and I'm now a bisexual lesbian. And it's just like, <laughs> I'm like, wow, this, this is really getting interesting. You know, the evolution of it and how it's seen. And, uh, and she's a priest. Ooh, shame. You know, <laughs> I even got that. <laughs> you know, so it's really interesting. You know, so, you, so there is a place in which you have to hold yourself in a place that's empowering for yourself, you know, and, and then there's where you can just be stuck with it, you know, like just stuck on that, you know, and not willing to allow uh, it to evolve into something that you, you might be afraid of. I, I've had um, queer friends, like um, I remember having a lesbian friend who fell in love with a man and it just about drove her crazy. <laughs> You know, and I was like, why, you know? Because she needed to stay with that label, right? She needed to stay, but love was there, you know? And the opposite way around, too, <laughs> where someone's with the man and then they're with a woman, you know? So there, there's an evolution that's scary. It's pretty scary to, so you'll go someplace and say, well, I don't necessarily see myself as black or white, either one of those things. And that's pretty powerful to say for yourself and for people to uh, explore with you and what that is for you. And a learning for us, a gateway, you know, so. Um, and then someone will call you black. So what does that mean to you, you know? I'm still working out bisexual lesbian, you know, basically, <laughs> myself. So, you know, people will name you. They will, you know, and then there it is, you know, so. And what does that mean? What does it mean to me? I, you know, I enjoyed it. <laughs> like, wow, what a name. <laughs> so now that is really getting get confused. confused now, you know, because, you know, I've had it all. I've had boyfriends for many years. You know, so. so willing to move. Open it up for yourself and don't worry about other people. If it's about other people, you're going to go name crazy. You will go crazy. Has to be for you. Yeah. Because everybody in here could name everybody else something, you know, and it'd be wrong or right or whatever. You know, everybody could do that. So you really have to work on it for yourself. No, despite what everyone else says, that's the way I, I feel. Yes. Was that good? I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, before I was about to go, I gave birth to a white male. And, uh, you know, that's like all we know right now. It's pretty sexual, pretty everything. And it's the, you're talking about the way of tenderness, and you said, now before I have some sort of pure spirit, he's not a white male, he's not anything, he's just human spirit, and it's created in me an infinite amount of tenderness that I wasn't aware of before, I hadn't tapped into before, and to the point that you're talking about 
all that resistance I had to things that are uncomfortable, the brutality that we're seeing right now, the joy that we're seeing right now. I mean, uh, we joke that by the time he's a teenager, there'll be no gender. Um, you know, I, I like to think the distortions that we have now will be gone, but the, the, you know, I, I fear the feeling like Laura was talking about, but I feel like we are in a position to, to shape what he knows, and when I'm, it, I feel so exposed to all of these things, and I want so badly to give him the gift of my own liberation and no distortion, mm -hmm. and that he would not know what being a white male in America is, even. Uh, and I recognize that I'm attached to some kind of power that I don't actually have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you. You, you hear that answer that yourself, you're attached <laughs> to something you, ha you have no control over, you know, and, um, and the, whatever the child takes on, is, is be interesting to see, you know, and witness yourself and, and, and what, you know, I, um, I'm in a community and, um, there is a small child. I've actually been get introduced to a couple of, not just in my community, a couple of uh, young, very young children who um, are not uh, taking on gender at all, any gender. But they are taking on some distortions of the genders. I watch them. It's kind of interesting to watch, even there, that there's no gender. <clears throat> in the clothes they choose, you know. So it's interesting, I think, maybe it's not out there for them for another choice, I don't know. But uh, it's, it's interesting um, that what they choose is more of the distortion sometimes to me, and for me, from my perspective, but for them it's a freedom, you know. But they are choosing some of the distortion, you know, and even in the, in the non-genderless or gender-fluid place. And so um, we still will uh, encounter, even in that, how one, how one transitions, you know, whether they do it well or in a supreme way. You know, there's still going to be some kind of something. Um, I remember um, one young child told me a long time ago, he says, we're just all brown, you know, just variations of brown and beige, and it was just really sweet. And then I said, yeah, but then, you know, at, we're the ones who say, you know, the beige is better than the, you know, the dark chocolate, you know, so that, that will, that can come, this is all over the world, not just in, <laughs> in this country, all over the world. So it uh, doesn't even matter what race, you know, dark hair, right, it's not the best, it's blonde. So it's just this thing that c continues. And so, um, you know, the, the, how we can use that, rather than erase the tension in it, I, I use it. I use it as the path, you know, the tension and the fear. And rather than worrying about the future of that child and what is going to happen, be with the tension of right now with the child, of what it's, what it's, it's feeling, going to feel like, you know, um, for you or mainly probably you. <laughs> You know, then being the mother, you know, and then um, and how you meet it, how you meet it, you know, and see that as a path. So it doesn't matter, you know, you can't because I'm not sitting. Let's get a, rid of the distortions because we probably can't. I'm just saying in terms of identity, there are distortions. So you can hold the identity. You can have an identity. It's the distortion around it that is causing our problems. So if we can see what that distortion is, then we're more liberated and more opening and more open-hearted and because we're more awake to that, what's happening, that distortion that's happening. So to, to now go out and, you know, march around against distortions won't, won't help necessarily all the way, you know. Um, so I think that it's important to, um, for us to understand, and I'm only coming from a Dharma perspective. There are many perspectives on what you just offered, everyone just offered. And because that's the only one I can offer is through my path and what I went through as a Zen practitioner um, 
one who meditates, I would say a Dharma practitioner, because I started out in Nishan Buddhism. So um, this is what I bring from my practice in that way. So it is um, an awakening to the distortions, you know, but not worrying about trying to get rid of them. You know, just knowing it. You know, because otherwise you have to get off the planet. And so sometimes we come in here trying to get off the planet. You know, get on the Zafu thinking we got off the planet now. <laughs> Shut the door. Don't let none of it come in. <laughs> but, you know, not going to happen. You know, not going to fully drop body and mind completely until we move on to that next realm. Whatever that is, death, called death. You know, so that's it. Is that good? Okay. Yeah. I always tell everybody, you know, when they say when the Japanese ask you what's your name and you say, like, I'll say Zenju, it's not saying what I am, it's saying the essence. You know, so they want to know what is your essence. That's what they were saying. I heard in the old days when you get these names. What is your essence? So when someone says, what's your name? Is what is your essence? So it really meant something, not only in Japan, you know, what a child was named, you know, because it really dictated how that child was going to be, you know. So we all are Zenju. It's just the essence. You know, that I'm working on more because maybe you're more Zenju than me. <laughs> you could be more Zenju than me. Yeah. You refer to uh, young people who don't have gender but still have gender. Are They're choosing some of the distortions because probably it's really difficult to figure out what would it be to be, you know, gender fluid or non-gender, you know, because they're like little pioneers, you know. So how how do they go in and um, what clothes do they choose, you know? Like, is it out there, you know? And um, or do, are they still going to end up getting boy clothes or girl clothes? You know, so some of the distortions is still being chosen in some way, I feel. And it's, it's, I don't think there's anything bad about that. I just think, again, distortions are uh, a way of, uh, these tensions are a way of uh, awakening. You know, if we were to just, and we all know this up here, but if we were to just live our lives with nothing happening, you know how that would be. We probably are dead or something, but you know we're not alive inside. You know, and there's some people who really try to just live their life at the corner store and in front of their favorite, you know, TV show, and you know, make it really simple. Go to work and do the same thing every day, and then that that way they they can be assured there's not going to be too much tension in their lives. You know, so they don't have any visitors. They make sure family doesn't visit. You know, those kinds of things. Maybe you're one of these people. I don't know. I used to be. <laughs> I'm just a solitude. I'm a monk. You know, I'm a <laughs> I like my peace. You know, but really, you know, so I think that um, it's mostly about the distortions and the tensions that I'm bringing forth. And it doesn't have to be around gender fluid, you know, fluidity or um, any, it's just what is yours, you know, the tensions. And I think because we're raced, and sexualized and genderized, all these things that these, these are really major uh, pathways, you know, for us. And um, especially in this country where we're so diverse, you know, there's so much diversity um, among us and among things too, you know, not just us people. And I think that that is a real gift to encounter things uh, and then never, and it's never exhausted ever exhausted. You're constantly encountering something you've never seen before, constantly, or heard before, or been with before. I think that's, that's a pretty great lab of liberation <laughs> to be in. You know, at least that's the way I felt at Zen Center, too. 
it was like that. Like, wow, this is a horrible situation first in my mind. I'm the only one. And then it was like, hmm, this is quite interesting situation. What you're going to do now? Because the world's just like this. How about doing it with people who are trying to walk the path? How about it? Because it's sure, you know, happening outside the door when I go out. So I took on the training, you know, to help with those tensions and distortions and pain and suffering from them. You know, I didn't have to go on top of the building. I am not a blah, 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 blah. Stop <laughs> treating me that way. <laughs> you know, I didn't do it. You know, I had the energy for it. You know, so um, I just turned my energy into my healing, into my well-beingness. We have time for one more? Yeah, I mean, there's about 45. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, I'm finding myself uh, struggling with commitment on a lot of different levels of my life. Uh-huh. I'm wondering if you can speak about commitment and uh-huh. um, you know, relationships. Well, what does commitment mean to you? Terror. <laughs> That's how it feels. <laughs> so it means something very big to you that, um, that you feel is against who you are. So that's what I'm trying to find out. What does it mean to you? Yeah. What does it mean to say uh, you're committed to, in the, and then you go the other way? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think, um, let, let's explore it a little bit. The, uh, the notion in this, in um, American, I'll say United States culture, because that's where I know the most, um, the word, the, to be committed means you never stop and, um, and, and you can't fail. And um, it has to go on forever till the day you die. And that's not true. That's not truly what commitment is about. Um, it does mean that to me, because um, I, I, I considered it around relationship for me too, you know, like, you know, after, you know, two or three years, and you know, like, okay, I'm tired of all that. You know, it's getting hard. I find somebody new. Uh, what happens is what I changed was because I was afraid I'd have to be with that person for the rest of my life forever. So the forever part is the scary part and there's no forever really. And um, that's a, an illusion too and a, a distortion to commitment that forever. So um, what I did for myself because I was a runner, I you know, wanted people to have my hand on the escape hatch you know, to get out of anything. And so I think that what I did was commit to, I'll commit to three months. And in relationship, I said, uh, how about this year? Are we going to do it again this year? You know, let's do it again for a year. So just kind of get rid of the forever part, you know, <laughs> and make your commitments to what you can commit to. And then also you can amend a commitment. <laughs> you know, you can change it. I say called change your contract <laughs> when I to you know some people get into these contracts with people and it doesn't work out you know relationship wise so you can say I like to talk about change you know an amendment to this part and see if we can um, flip it to be this way or that way you know so there's it doesn't have to stay the same forever it doesn't have to be forever and you can amend you can speak to what you need to have change. So um, if you're committed to having like a vows, almost like that, you're kind of, you know, committed to having a, a, a relation, intimate relationship of wellness, that's, your, that's what you want, you know, that's your commitment. You can have that, you know, but you can do it in increments, you know, um, because that's, it's a vow. Vows are never really met 
completely, you know. But it's, it's a way of walking in our lives, you know, and seeing and just, ha and just knowing, you know. So um, a lot of people want to know, are Buddhists vegetarians all the time, you know. Not all Buddhists are vegetarians, you know. Does that mean they're not uh, going against the vow to, com you know. And in some traditions, you are going against the vow of killing. And then you can go to other traditions and find that um, even though you don't eat meat, I think the vow is bigger than about not eating meat, too. It's, it's bigger about not killing spirit or not um, participating. Because we're all participating. Every time we buy a tank of gas, we're participating in the war. So it's hard. We're kind of it's interrelated, right? And so um, even in the, in the vegetarian, you know, I have some people want to be. And I said, you know, you don't have to have meat every day. <laughs> you know, you, I, there's a way in which you can be more conscious. It's asking us to be conscious. So a commitment is asking you to be conscious of what you said you want. So if you can remain conscious of what you said you wanted and have entered into that gateway with that, then that's the commitment. It's not 10 years, 12 years, because that might not be. It might be 30, 40 years. You may be gone tomorrow. Who knows? So it's not about time. It's not forever. I don't know if that helps a little bit. Okay. All right. So um, we're going to go back into. Um, Service now, okay. <laughs> Going to service, okay. And thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.